Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. But I think that the central question, right, how do we work out our faith in the places that we are? How does reading literary texts in a certain place change what they mean? Um, I think it does. I think where you are helps you, like, meet God there, right? Like, if you pay attention to where you are um, and seek the Lord in that place, that's how it works. And so this is just one example of how that might work. Um, So you can sort of you know, maybe it's attending to plant life or something like that. A kind of oh, sure. walking park or whatever, bird watching, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, so, if you want to sort of interact with nature, plenty of ways to do that, even in urban spaces. But I would say even just okay, here I am in the city. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reform Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today's book club episode is brought to us by Erdman's Publishers. They are the publishers for today's book we're talking about, written by Tiffany Eberly Kreiner. Dr. Tiffany Eberly Kreiner wrote the book In Thought, Word, and Seed, Reckonings from a Midwestern Farm. So for you guys on YouTube, oh, I'm sorry. I have a funny background anyway. (laughs) So you guys get, there we go. So for you guys on YouTube, Tiffany just uh, held up the book. Um, And so I'm going to read the endorsement from Claude Acho. As you guys know, we've had Claude Acho on the show before. So I picked his endorsement. There's a handful of other really good endorsements for this book as well. But we personally know Claude. So I'll read that one. So he says this about Tiffany's book. Few writers can pull off the range, insight, and depth found in this book. Tiffany Kreiner's voice and musings are vulnerable and perceptive, erudite yet conversational, with humane reflections that reckon with James Baldwin's haunting voice and the paradoxes and travails of academia, family, and farming. This book is genuinely remarkable and gloriously undefinable. Consider it as a seed that will bear life-giving fruit in all those who, with patience, attend to its pages. So in our show notes, click the link to uh, Erdman's. It'll take you directly to this book so you can order it. And then there's other information in our show notes about us, how to connect with us, how to find us on social media, email us more about our show, our, our website, our confessional podcast network website as well with other like-minded podcasts that we uh, created this group for. And then, so yeah, let's uh, jump into this, this conversation with Tiffany, Tiffany. So I'll let Peter further introduce our guest today. Yeah, we have 
Dr. Tiffany Eberl, Eberly. So I knew I was going to mispronounce the middle name. I'm glad Nick, I'm glad Nick did it before. Tiffany Eberly Kreiner, who's associate professor of English at Wheaton College and the author of The Future of the Word and Eschatology of Reading, also runs Root and Sky Farm. We're going to talk about all these things and so much more. It's a pleasure having you on our show, Dr. Kreiner. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Of course. Yeah. So first, and we're, we'll get into this, and this is kind of our cold kind of opener, but how did you get into farming in the first place? So now that's people look at an English professor as like a farmer and English professor. How do those two things go together? Well, I mean, there's there's a tradition of this kind of thing, right? Like Wendell Berry and his sort of true, poetry, true. farming, you know, or just sort of uh, attention to the land and literature, like Annie Dillard or something like that, right? So there's a there's a kind of connection there. But for me, we got uh, into farming. You could you could tell it as a really long story, a really short story, in the sense that I grew up in a really small town in upstate northern New York called yeah. Adam. And I grew up between a strawberry farm and a dairy farm. And we weren't in farming. My family wasn't. But my first job was picking strawberries for that strawberry farm. Um, And a sense of landscape being really important was huge uh, in my growing up life. Uh, But the sort of, you know, once you get to the actual grown up time when you make decisions, you know, we were living in the suburbs um, of Chicago uh, as you know, uh, on the tenure track, Wheaton professor kind of thing. And my husband had kind of come out of working in business to be the primary caregiver of our children. And I sort of made this trade with him, like, okay, so let's get tenure. (laughs) And then, you know, all the vocational searching that has no doubt happened to you while you've been changing diapers and doing all these things. (laughs) That's going to bear fruit because we're going to be able to do a thing that you want to do. And Mm. so we started watching documentaries on food, you know, all those beautiful beautiful documentaries and we started he started taking this program with the university of illinois extension and uh called farm beginnings and then uh he did some internships like with a goat dairy and with Mm -hmm. a pasture-raised meats farm and uh, he just really fell in love with the whole thing and so as i was kind of publishing my tenure book and getting tenure and all those sort of really intense moments of those first few years in academia he was you know, learning about this new vocation. And I actually wrote in the acknowledgments of my first book, okay, mm-hmm. now let's build you a farm. You know, like, okay, baby, it's your time, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so it took us forever to find some land because, you know, we had bought our first house um, at the worst time ever. You know, we sold it barely, you know, and so we didn't have much money to work with. Um, yeah. So, we were looking for kind of as much land as we could find. And so um, it took us a while, you know, to find it. And we began finally in 2017. Um, Rue Sky Farm then was born. There you go. Heck yeah. So a little bit more about yourself. So beyond your, you talked about your farm, um, a little bit of that. And then we've talked about your Wheaton stuff. Mm-hmm. So more about Tiffany beyond your bio. Let's get to know Tiffany. Okay. Well, um, uh, just dropped a bunch of books. Sorry about that. Um, I think if I was telling the story of myself, I might mention that when I was very young, um, I had cancer that was really serious. Oh, so as a five-year-old to a seven-year-old, I had uh, embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, super rare kind of cancer, and it was so serious that it. I really think like a community just formed around our family, uh, a community of faith, of prayer and support. And as God kind of healed me through medical care um, over the period of two years of surgery and radiation and chemotherapy, that was very intense and painful. um, That experience kind of shaped who I am in the sense of uh, gaining this kind of the girl who lived kind of Mm. uh, feel for for my life, right? So... Mm. Uh, when I think about all of the travails of my like writing or something like that, <laughs> I'm I I feel like in some ways I'm just sort of wrestling with that. <laughs> what does it mean to be a representative of God's mercy? Right, like God rescued me and my life, and people would say things like God saved you for a purpose. <laughs> um, and you know, as a five year old, like that's a big that's a big thing to sort yeah. of pick. So um, so in that sense, I've always been concerned 
about like, what's the meaning of this? What, you know, what's the significance? How, how do you have a meaningful life? Um, and I feel like pursuing um, meaningfulness in language, pursuing um, this enterprise with farming um, has been a way to kind of think to yourself, you know, okay, so achievement fades as a way mm-hmm. of gaining significance over time. There's only so many times you can be valedictorian or whatever before, yeah. <laughs> yeah. before that ce- ceases to be meaningful to your interlocutors or whatever, right? Uh, so how else do we find that? How else do we gain that? And of course, the sense of meaning being in Christ um, was the natural uh, sort of outcome of a searching like that. Um, and so in terms of my personality, I would say, I'm a meaning searcher, um, mm-hmm. saved by Jesus uh, to, to, I hope, you know, do this work. Awesome. Amen. Wonderful. Yeah, definitely. And then my first question follows your bio and talking about your farm really well, kind of bridging into your book here. So we've learned a little bit about your story. Um, maybe you can go into a little bit more detail about how your story specifically led up to writing this book and the motivation it created to actually write it. Sure. Absolutely. So I think maybe the best way into that question would be through my first book. So um, the future of the word is a, it was my tenure book and it's a book of literary theory and theology that was basically trying to figure out, right? Like what use is reading in the kingdom of God? What, you know, what, why would we do that? Um, and I made this argument in it that, you know, Jesus is the guarantor of all meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus, if we follow John 1 and Jesus is becoming, right, the word became flesh and all that coming and becoming language. Mm-hmm. And if we consider the, so the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has a future, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus's um, work on earth, his redemptive work um has a future he's coming back and so that idea of the futurity of the word uh, seems to me to be really interesting when you consider how language makes meaning too how novels how poems how whatever you know whatever language we use makes meaning and so I was thinking uh so I wrote a whole book about how that works how meaning is something that has a future and a becoming it's not static and how readers when we do the reading we kind of cultivate those meanings with the love of the Trinity within the love of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So I use that that uh, cultural mandate in Genesis to make that argument. So, right, that God says to the humans, cultivate this and keep it, right? Um, that we get to work with God um, in that project that he has for the whole of creation. Uh, so I, I loved writing that book, but that the agriculturalness of that metaphor, even though I mention it so many times in that book, hadn't really worked its way fully out of me. So when we became actual farmers, I began to kind of wonder, okay, so we're cultivating these meanings of text, right? Here we are just cultivating the meanings. <laughs> but uh, w- what difference does it make where you do it, hmm. right? Like we had this huge move, this huge change in our lives from suburban life to really rural life to sort of isolation. You know, the pandemic was during the time that I wrote the book or whatever. But um, so what difference does it make where you read a text? Would the text that I love so much that I teach, for example, read differently from the space of the farm? And I had a hunch that it did make a difference, if only because I was thinking about the work's that I love and teach while we were making that move, right? So if I was trying to figure out how do we not wreck a piece of land when we don't know how to treat it well, <laughs> right? Like when we when we are just beginning, yeah. um, how do we come into a community where we are strangers, um, where here we are, oh, we just sail in, buy a foreclosed piece of property, you know, what do we do? Um, and I was finding myself thinking of the texts that I care about. Um, Piers Plowman, uh, Charles Chestnut's work, James Baldwin's work, Walt Whitman, you know, all these tons of texts from a huge range of traditions became kind of conversation partners. And I was realizing that I was kind of planting the texts in a way in the space of the farm. Huh. Um, I got a couple of invitations from an editor of a theology journal, Mark Granquist. 
and who said, you know, I loved your first book. Can you write us some more? And so I used those invitations as an opportunity to actually do a, a little stunt, a little experiment. Okay, I've got this field. Uh, what happens if I, you know, think about these texts in and through this particular space? Will um, my life in Christ, my sense of theological meaning, like, come together with these texts and the space to bear fruit for the kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, so these essays were trying to make that kind of happen. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So much kudos to you being a farmer because that requires <laughs> yeah. so much patience. And a professor at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And kids and a husband. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, it's true. that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. In fact, my hands actually smell like sheep right now. Nice. <laughs> I was loading sheep this morning with my husband. Uh, you know, I was anything before 8 a.m., honey, I got to go, you know. <laughs> That's great. That, this yeah. day and age that hearing that kind of stuff is like just so refreshing because that's I, I was like, about to say, yeah, that, it's that, actually working with your hands, cultivating the land. And we live in such a technology driven virtual world where actually like do something with your hands. Um, I, like it must be uh, feel immensely satisfying, but tremendously hard working to do what you do. Yeah, well, I mean, it is totally right, and I've harried all the time, etc. Right, totally, totally, tons of work, but I love every bit of it. I mean, okay. well, I don't like you know <laughs> the, the graves or whatever, but you know, yeah. other than that, it's all I good. Like, I don't know if you're gonna love cleaning poop all the time, but that's <laughs> you get used to it in a way uh, that I would never really realize. Okay, I mean, okay. Pig poop is the worst smelling, but yeah, everything else is pretty grass based, so it works right. out pretty good. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, and uh, even growing up in Idaho, just the smell of a farm sometimes brings back nostalgic, yeah, uh, feel to me. But yeah, just farming requires so much patience, care, discipline, and consistency that um, I I think that just as a you know, it could help you in your even journey as a Christian as, as well, just, as, you know, uh, taking care of the land. So going to the name of your of your farm, it's called Root and Sky Farm. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it reflects earthbound upward motion, the name of the farm. So could you go into that? Yeah, totally. So the name of the farm comes from poetry, actually, that I have loved for a long time. Uh -huh. uh, when I was in college at Messiah College, um, we did a play under the direction of Tom Ryan uh, called The Boy with a Cart by Christopher Fry. And it's this bizarre poetry play um, from the mid 20th century, a saint's play in which um, this, this boy, his father dies and he takes a journey with his mother um, and where the the cart breaks down, um, he he builds a church and there's this kind of miracle. It's a kind of, you know, an actual saint's story. Hmm. But the the way that the play worked was that it had a chorus of the farmers and people of Southern England. And at the very beginning, the opening speech of the whole play um, addresses their life, right? It says, here's how we live our lives. And I don't, maybe I'll just read. Um, yeah, do it. From it. Uh, in our fields, fallow and burdened, in grass and furrow, in barn and stable, with scythe, flail, or harrow, sheep shearing, milking, or mowing, on labor that's older than knowledge. With God we work, shoulder to shoulder, God providing, we dividing, sowing, and pruning, not knowing yet, and yet sometimes discerning, discerning a little at spring, when the bud and shoot with pointing finger show the hand at the root, with stretching finger point the mood in the sky, sky and root in joint action, and the cry of the unsteady lamb allying with the brief sunlight with the curled and cautious leaf. Uh, beautiful, right? And yeah, I, that's, like, that's a gorgeous I mean, poem. To this day, I have it, you know, I'm, I'm reading it, but I, I have it memorized also uh, because it made such a difference in my life. Oh. It formed this imagination in me of how uh, that, that idea, sky and root in joint action with God, we work shoulder to shoulder. Thanks to Jesus, right? We do, right? We, we do work actual literal shoulder uh, to shoulder with God. And so that idea roots uh, being a sky, being that sort of uh, divine or heavenly sort of vision coming together through Christ, uh, through, through the providence, through the providing of God, right? So, um, 
when Rue Tent Sky, um, when we were naming, we had all these lists of names. And I thought, you know, my husband is not a literature guy. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we married uh, opposites rather than mm-hmm. uh, rather than like. And so I thought, there's no way he's going to go for a poetry. <laughs> like, we're, this is, and of course, my heart was set on it because I'm like, as soon as I thought about it, I was like, this is it. This is the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, I still think it's an act of supreme grace. You're just getting ready for heartbreak. God, but he liked it. Um, uh, and yeah. it so like, thank you, Jesus. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education, coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www. .wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Yeah, so going into some of the topics discussed in this book, and there's there's a lot, and they're kind of inter- interwoven, inter- intertwined within it, or there's some that are more particularly apparent in some. So you do literature, Racism, pandemics, hope, fear, work, so much more. Uh, the craft of writing, the love of reading, awareness of racism might might seem kind of like an odd pairing. And especially so with the earthiness of a farm. Someone's like, what on earth does cultivating the land have to do with racism? What does it have to do with pandemics? What does it have to do with hope? What does it have to do with reading? All this stuff. So can you talk a, a little bit about how farming, particularly so, has cultivated these aspects of your life and then how these aspects of your life in turn have cultivated your love for farming. Really? Um, so I think that maybe the, the key answer will please you as theological podcast, um, you know, uh, conveners. Yeah. Uh, and I think the answer is honestly theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so the connection between the two is theological. So if we think of uh, theology as the practice of Christian doctrine, then that, practice is something that, uh, and that term, of course, practicing Christian doctrine is the title of Beth Wilker Jones' book on that subject, yep. which, yep. which I love so much, um, but, or even as Kevin Hector's, right, that sort of way of life, um, then we figure out our relationship with God, we figure it all out wherever we are, um, right, what, what we're doing in our lives. Mm-hmm. So I had this moment learning um, really profoundly what it means to take up your cross when my husband had another knee surgery, um, took him out for a summer and I had to take over the farm duties. And I just remember like crying in the field because I didn't want to do all that work. And I felt the Lord speaking to me, like, this is what it means. Like, Mm. this is the moment to lay down your life for your spouse. And and I was just like, Oh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't want to, I really want to hear. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But Point being, though, like um, in terms of the book itself and its structure, I actually started as much as anything with a theological topic and a place on the farm. So, okay, I really want to consider sin because because of what was happening um, with race in the United States. So that the chapter that you're thinking of that's dealing centrally with racism, chapter two, that Mm -hmm. that is a a dream letter to James Baldwin. um, That happened because here we were. Um, here we are as a nation mm-hmm. sort of reckoning, thinking through uh, that issue. And I was 
struck that my personal theological resources to deal with sin, the idea of the ledger, for example, like you do this wrong and Jesus will sort of pay the balance yep. and so on. Yep. You try to try to not need that much of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, this, this ledger that I don't, I wouldn't even say that anyone in my growing up life would have signed on completely to that, but somehow I absorbed that idea. It's like Uh, theological waters out there. Even if it wasn't explicitly taught, it was just kind of there. uh, Exactly. So, so, so I thought, well, I need to do some thinking about sin. Um, And I, in fact, was in that field a great deal of the time, right? The hidden five um, is the name of the five acres uh, field. So I just would go out there. What was I reading at the time? Pierce Plowman and women and all this stuff. And so, so, I began to just write some pieces, like asking the Lord, um, how, how do you help me think through this? Um, how do you, how shall I live out a better version or vision of what it means to be yours um, in this space? Given the books that I love that you've brought into my life, given um, the, the, the space where we are um, in this moment. And of course there just so happens that because of being in a pandemic, it's not like we could go that many places. Other than <laughs> the yeah. So in that sense, it was helpful um, to be confined in a way to that space to do that thinking well. So that was the, the way it was with all of the chapters. So sin was um, that way. Um, holiness, um, the last chapter had, I, I sort of built a fence at the beginning of the pandemic to, yeah. in order to think about holiness yeah, uh, because of profaneness yep. outside. Yep. Right? Yeah. So that kind of circum Some temple uh, themes right there. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Right. So I thought, well, I, you know, I can't, I couldn't make myself sit down that much because I was so, you know, we're all sort of anxious. And so that work helped me do some of the thinking that I would mm-hmm. then write up, um, mm-hmm and gathered together. And it was that way, right? Vocation for the forest chapter, beauty and brokenness for the owl chapter, the clearing. Um, Mm. So yeah, so it starts, so theology was the thing that connected land, space, and literature uh, in this, in that way so so smoothly. I need, I need to work out my faith with fear and trembling. I need to be Jesus's here. I need the mercy of the Lord in this space every day. So how do I, how do I do that? Yeah. Maybe for lack of a better way, and this will bridge into next question, lack of a better way of describing this. It sounds like doctrine, doctrine, theology. Yes. These are kind of not theoretical concepts, but they can like sometimes sit in our brains. Like, yes, we, yes, we ascend to it, but like, we don't really see it or feel it or know it too much, but it sounds something like the situatedness of you being in the farm, you, you seeing how these things play out. And then the world helps you, for lack of a right to cultivate some of these theological doctrines. Okay. I see how these things play out. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's not special to me personally. I think we all need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, I I remember as a child, will you loan your sister that thing that your sister (laughs) wants, like give to him who asks of you and him who (laughs) borrow, do not turn away. Right. Like we have to work out our faith in those, in those moments that are so mundane and in a way that pushes back against that yeah. kind of sense of specialness, right? Yeah. Oh, you lived, you're such a miracle. Sure. But you still have to loan your sister the thing you still have to, <laughs> yeah. you still have to do the farm work because your husband is injured and you yeah. love him. You couldn't just tell them, although it's true. It's like, yes, I survived cancer when I was five years old. So therefore I don't do anything else because I'm a miracle, but it's like, yeah, I've still to still do stuff. Totally. Totally. I mean, well, you know, who's a great example of this and like, uh, I've been reading uh, the book of Isaiah again this summer mm-hmm. and Isaiah says like me and my children are signs, but they still have to like do the justice. They still <laughs> yeah. have to, you know. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah, that, that reminds me that there's just, there's beauty in ordinary things in yeah. ordinary, just. Yeah. It, yeah. Just consistency, just doing yeah, what doing farming, Nick and hospice care people and whatever the heck they do. It's, you can find these analogs with what you do in, in the Christian faith as well. For sure. Yeah. And speaking of names of chapters, uh, which define themes for a reason. I mean, there's a reason why you have certain farm and country nature words uh, that represent each chapter. So go into the, the table of contents, we see terms uh, for each chapter like fields, grass, the forest, clearings, waddle. So people that 
have nothing to do with uh, farm life. They probably what's, are, what's a waddle? They, they <laughs> might not know what some of those terms are. Hopefully, everyone yeah. knows what fields, grass, and forest are. But um, there's a reason and a uh, why you pick those words. So just kind of throwing it out there, like what what do those words? How do they tie to kind of a, a Christian understanding or what you're trying to un, unravel in the book? Yeah. So. Well, I think maybe the easiest one to start with would be grass, right? So you think um, anyone who has kind of grown up immersed in scripture has a sense of grass as a really important image in scripture, specifically tied to human mortality, right? All flesh is like grass, Mm -hmm. right? The sort of uh, the wind passes over it and it is gone, uh, right? Uh, So that idea, I mean, again, even in Isaiah, that idea of how the grass curls up or bends down when it dies. an image of human mortality and frailty. And so um, when I think about the Midwest in particular, right, this is the space of grass, um, the tall grass prairie that is so threatened, uh-huh. right? Um, the, the, the resurgence of the seeking to restore prairie that happens, uh, that is happening now in movements in this area. So amazing, um, but, you know, linking together the Midwest's distinct relationship with grass um, and that sense or that image idea of mortality um, in some ways related to sin, right? Like, why do we die? Sin. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that was, uh, I think is the, is a little bit of the poetic connection there. But it might be that, well, if you don't have a personal connection to grass in that way, and that image seems weird, um, I guess maybe I would just say that, you know, that hymn, This Is My Father's World, Mm -hmm. there's this really kind of almost cheesy line, in the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He (laughs) speaks to me everywhere or whatever. And so like that rhyme is so on the nose that it feels like (laughs) a little much to me, uh, just thinking through the poetry. But when I think of it in a Midwestern sense, that the grass, the tall grass that is taller than you, that is just manages drought, that creates a sort of network, that the roots 30 feet below the ground, more, you know, the, the generations, etc. Um, I do, yeah, I do sense the Lord in the rustling grass because of where I am on the farm, because of the prairies uh, that people I love are restoring and working toward. Um, and so, the poetic, the scriptural, and um, the sort of experiential merge in that way. And I think that's the case for all of the terms, right? Oh. Um, so for the fields, I was thinking of physics, um, the field of forces, and mm. also field of souls. And also, mm-hmm. um, yeah, each one has has that kind of resonance between poetry and experience and theology. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So diving into kind of a jumping off point was chapter two for this question, but more generally speaking, so too, you've got a lot of conversation partners and one more explicitly so that you talk about James Baldwin. So you wrote Mm -hmm. letters to him and you kind of quote unquote received letters back from him. Um, Who has helped you develop your literary love and maybe like what, how do you interact with these letters? How do you interact with these, these books, these these poets, these epistles, you can call them from those you've never met, but they've cultivated your love. They've cultivated your thought. They've cultivated you while you cultivate these texts and these, this, this form as well. Yeah. So I wonder if I can ask just back a little bit, do you mean who are the people who introduced me to these texts and led me through them? Or do you mean who are the writers that the writers? Yeah. The writers that you interact with. Yep. Sure, sure, sure. So I think the writers that um, show up in this book most centrally do so um, because of my teaching life. So um, I have been a professor at Wheaton College for low these 17 years in my 18th year now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the best thing 
um, about working at a liberal arts college is the range that you get to, to um, meet. So I get to teach this huge variety of courses, so many, it's a little overwhelming actually, but, um, but it means that I get to interact with texts, sure, as an Americanist, but I trained as a 20th century Americanist, and then suddenly I get the whole range of that. And then suddenly, because two doors down is Ben Weber, the best medievalist ever, um, <laughs> you know, we have these two hour long conversations about Pierce plowman and then i go back to peers whom i loved in college you know um so the the liberal artsness of my job means wide variety hmm. uh, so when i teach a text i get to engage with it so centrally with this group of students who are brilliant and wonderful the goosebumps abound in class mm -hmm. and uh and then they become kind of available so I have taught, for example, the in the first chapter, I uh, deal with Charles Chestnut, African, mm -hmm. 19th century African-American writer. Um, I taught that that text many, many times. And so uh, it's a it's about a couple of a white northern couple who goes down mm -hmm. and buys a plantation, a ruined plantation, and they meet. Uh, a person who had been formerly enslaved, who uh, Uncle Julius is his name, and he tells them a bunch of stories. And he becomes one of their employees when uh, they purchase the ruined plantation. But when we sort of moved into a ruined piece of land, and here we were, mm -hmm. you know, so eager beaver, you know, in her way of going in, and just needing local guides, needing ways, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, what those people, John and Annie, in that story don't know is all of the history of trauma, all the things that's go that are going that, that are going on in that space and that have shaped its history. And so Uncle Julius tells them that. And so when we were moving, I felt the need of that history because I had read that text. I felt the need of guides. And I knew that Charles Chestnut was going to be one of the people who was going to help me along the way, a neighbor I could ask for advice. Uh, my friend, uh, Josh maybe a farmer uh, in Southern Wisconsin, also a professor at UW-Whitewater, had that idea of farmers, or sorry, of literary texts as neighbors. And mm. so, you know, you, you sort of think, who knows about this? Ah, Chestnut knows about this. I'm gonna go and look mm. back at that text. You know, sure, farming handbooks and YouTube videos <laughs> help yeah. you, uh, yeah. but, but for me, Virgil, for me, mm. Chestnut, for me, Baldwin, uh, these have been people I've been engaging with, words that I've been engaging with for decades. So mm -hmm. of course they would come to mind in this space. And I hope, I hope for good. Yeah, yeah. For their, the cultivation of their meaningfulness in the world through their work um, and through, I hope, the just treatment of the animals and land and people um, that we in encounter. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, maybe too, just just because I thought this chapter was so stinking profound. And I love the way that you went through it. That's like when you were talking to or conversing, I guess, with James Baldwin, could you talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Cause it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. So if, yeah, just talk about that a little bit. Well, you're so kind to ask. It was the most difficult chapter to write by far. Uh, I was terrified the whole time. Um, I went through several like, versions and visions what's it going to be like one one version of it was entirely in the same line um meter and oh. stress pattern as Pierce Plowman okay like I wrote a poetic version you know all these things um, <laughs> and so there were so many many versions and visions but uh in that chapter of dream letters it seems to me that given the pandemic, given uh, George Floyd and the racial reckoning uh, that America is and was passing through at that time, um, I was going to be thinking about sin. I was going to be thinking about those things anyway. And there was nobody who said it better, who thought through those problems more profoundly uh, than James Baldwin, although there are many yeah, heroes and heroes too. Yep. But in my experience, um, a person who knew what it meant to be profoundly impacted by church, profoundly impacted by uh, Christianity, but also um, had a, had a real sense of the American landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, he was a, a city boy uh, <laughs> primarily, 
So I, I did sense like, is it weird to have you come into this field with me? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I wanted to, to engage with his work, but I, I don't know. I, I didn't feel like I could approach him directly as hmm. if they were real letters. I needed them to be dream letters mm-hmm. because I didn't want to presume. Mm. Right. I didn't want to imagine mm-hmm. that I had written letters to actual James Baldwin. He's yeah, dream yeah, James Baldwin, yeah. right? Like, and I know that, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm trying to be as faithful as I can to his texts yep. um, and to reading them as thoroughly and well as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but the dream feature of it to call it a dream letter is to acknowledge, yeah, there's distance there. Mm. Um, right there's for those who don't know James Baldwin's dead which is a while ago so don't think that she's actually writing dream letters this is yeah to a, a famous like 20th century writer um yeah, yeah so yeah that's I, I know people are thinking this is like oh this is kind of odd who's James Baldwin but if you don't know who he is that's why she's saying what she's saying yeah so that's a good a good point um and I think a lot of the book is has that weirdness about it, mm-hmm. right? A dream letter as a as an organizing principle. In the forest chapter, I imagined each section. There's no note of this, but it, I imagined <laughs> each section as a tree. Oh. Um, in the waddle chapter, you know, there are all these quotations that represent yep. the uprights, yep. and then the, the little reflections are the withies um, that <laughs> yeah. waddle the fence. Yeah. And so um, those... I knew there was a structure. I, I was trying to figure it out. Right. Like totally. I, I could tell there's something going on, but that's helpful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And so I hope that even if you don't fully sense it, that there's something there to, to yep. receive and something there uh, to engage with. Um, but I, I don't know. These are really intractable, hard theological issues. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem to me mm-hmm. that the same sort of essays that I was working on in the future of the word or the same sorts of academic forms that I am used to, that I, you know, train students in, it didn't seem like they were sufficient mm-hmm. to how many things needed to go in, how many, how complicated it all felt to me, how bewildering um, the intractable problem it seems of sin um our need for redemption etc right mm-hmm. um even the ongoing issue of vocation even as a middle-aged person right yeah. uh, which is that forest chapter yeah the mystery of marriage 20 years in you know mm-hmm. so- <laughs> absolutely Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah, uh, before my last question, just a <clears throat> reflection, personal reflection um, that I've had just based on reading the book and, and listening to this conversation. is It just reminds me of when someone asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew Christ is coming back tomorrow? And he said, I would still plant my apple tree. And so um, that just is it's a good tying connections to what we are hoping for and looking for in the finished work of Christ and what our duty is here, taking care of this planet and this land now um, in our vocations as well as like you so beautifully put. Um, So kind of wrapping up the conversation a little bit. uh, My last question would just be curious to know, you said what the most difficult chapter or part of the book was to write. Um, what was maybe your most favorite part of the book or chapter to write? Um, what would you hope might challenge the readers 
yeah. you know, based on that, on this book as well. Sure. Uh, so I find writing difficult on the best of days. So um, <laughs> you're, you're a regular old writer. I, I've not heard anybody ever <laughs> no. say well, writing's easy. Right. So, um, and especially given my many vocations, the yeah. time and space to write is very precious. Uh, and often stolen away by this or that, uh, <laughs> or given away, not only sure. stolen, but <laughs> bestow it, uh, sometimes wisely, sometimes unwisely. Uh, but so when I think about joyful moments um, of writing, it would be moments where I hit flow and was able to concentrate mm -hmm. extremely on a thing. So one moment of that would be in the chapter called Clearing, there is a description of a sort of adolescent great horned owl that I got mm -hmm. to spend several hours mm -hmm. with um, uh, right in our woods, just right there, you know, the length of my <laughs> desk between yeah. us. Um, and I was just waiting, you know, for animal um, rescue yep, to come yep, and yep. fall. But anyway, the description of that owl, um, it took me so long to concentrate enough to see him. It took so long to be there, to throw away my phone, to <laughs> get into the space with him. And then writing the description of his body um, and his eyes and his ways felt like a a rich privilege, uh, a way to sort of where I could bring the best that my sense of English language has to offer mm -hmm. to respect this amazement, right? To respect this creature. Um, and I I loved that moment. Um, mm -hmm. Not that it came together easily or rolled off the pencil, <laughs> you know, 20 drafts or whatever to make it happen that way. But um, I love when I am able to like, try for a for a a giving try for a way of understanding yeah. through that language and so that would be a just one joyful moment um and i remember too like when i finished the draft of the last chapter right uh which was forest the last one i wrote and i remember walking out into the woods and it was november and the snow was falling and just being thankful to each and every tree there and, you know, <laughs> praising Jesus, like, Lord, thank you so much. I can't believe the mercy, you know, all that kind of thing. So this is common among people, you know, who, who finish projects are the glad ones, right? Uh, we are so grateful uh, to be able to finish works. Um, as far as challenging the readers, um, I confess that challenging people isn't really my goal at all in this work. Um, which is to say, uh, I think I felt that and feel that the questions that I am engaging with, the question of how to manage um, a sense of collective responsibility uh, for racism in the United States, uh, a sense of how to manage um, the need for an ongoing sense of vocation, how to manage um, sin, how to think, or uh, holiness, how to think through all of these big questions about beauty and brokenness are something that lots of us care about and face, right? So um, I less think of this book as providing a kind of, oh, they've all said this about this, but I'm going to say something different, you know, <laughs> or something like that. You know, I rather would say that I hope to give a sense of togetherness. Hmm. Like here we are, all of us trying to figure out a life of faith in the world, um, we're trying to sense how the divine and the mundane overlap, how we work with God shoulder to shoulder. If I can do my best at writing this down, that struggle, the work of it, maybe you could feel that feeling, the kind of trembly yes of both camaraderie, but also that sense like if the writing worked, if the mercy happened, could you sense that overlap? Could you sense like, here we are meeting Jesus. He is in that field. He's coming in and he's coming again, right? Uh, that sense uh, of wonder. And I think, you know, I think that would be my goal. Um, less to sort of, you know, make a case for a cultural war position or something like that. I'm already worried what people will think about those things for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but I would never, I would never have said like, oh, I want to like make a case. Hmm. Awesome. I, I like that answer. Yeah, that's good. So 
I'm going to uh, I'm going to pull a thread. I'm not super sure this is your intention, but I'm going to I'm going to take a stab at it okay. and say a thread that might run through connecting. And this is this has to do kind of a theological reading, I guess, of both this book and, and scriptures. God takes the chaos of the world and cultivates a cultivates a garden, cultivates a, a city at the end of Revelation. There's there's a cultivation of this not too dissimilar from what you do um, with a broken peat town farm. That was neglected in cultivating this and not too dissimilar from what our uh, artists do and, um, and, and literary authors who cultivate words to, to bring something beautiful. So we've talked a lot about kind of redemption through Jesus as the end of this cultivation. So can you talk, how can literature kind of forming this stuff at the end, how can literature be used towards this redemptive goal in Jesus? Well, I think that when we read together, um, we are participating in a meaning making that Jesus himself sets in motion and guarantees. Mm -hmm. So when we read a, anything, Tennyson, whatever, right, um, we are as we sort of seek to read it in a new place, in a new time, uh, as we seek to kind of reach it again, uh, meet it with our own lives and so on, we're um, participating in that future. We are actually part of the meaning-making heading towards Shalom that Jesus is after with the kingdom. And so I used to wonder, uh, I had this dream in graduate mm -hmm. school, where poems were canned goods on a food pantry shelf. Hmm. And I was so angsty, right? Like, can you really, can you really do this? Like, can you be an English professor and serve Jesus? Shouldn't you have to hmm. um, go on a mission field? Yep. Shouldn't you have to be a martyr, like straight up, right? Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, Jesus as the word made flesh, the word become flesh, who has a future, who is making all things new. I think, grants us a, attentiveness to meaning as a vocation, um, attentiveness to the abundance that uh, he has set in motion from the creation of the world. Uh, and I think literature is one avenue toward that. Um, and especially, I think an especially fruitful one, right? Uh, all the goosebumps <laughs> there. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, even, I mean, maybe we put and we do put scripture in a special category, yep. but I think of the Psalm, the Psalm, uh, Psalm 90 as mm -hmm. a special case that would describe how that chaos to garden, how that, you know, um, how that work of God works. Um, and it is sort of the sense that an awareness of God's work in the world puts our own work, whatever it be, reading, whatever, um, into perspective. We view the work of God. Let your glorious power be manifest to your servants and the, to their children. Uh, prosper then the work of our hands. If we have work in the world, farming work, literary work, teaching work, um, housework, uh, all of those works get their meaning in and because of the glorious work of God. I think writing, farming, all of those things are ways of attending hmm. to that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah, wonderful. I can see so so much agricultural connections in scripture that are pretty yeah. clear. The the Garden of Eden, yeah. separating the wheat it's, from the chaff. It's an agrarian society. Floor. So yeah, what else? That's like what they have to pull from. Like that's what everybody knows. Yep. Yeah, and it's it could be hard today, like you, you said, if if we're city dwellers. Um, actually, maybe so sorry, one last little question. I was thinking about mm -hmm. this in the middle of it. Um, for us city dwellers. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm I'm in the middle of urban Santa Ana, which is um, central Orange County, which is Southern California. For those who don't know, um, Nixon Mission Viejo, you're in you're in Chicago or the Chicago outskirts. Um, for those of us who don't live near farms, never li ne never live through farms, maybe not so much. Like, how can we engage with this book? I mean, how can we most fruitfully engage? Of, like, this is not the culture that we live in so much. 
Sure. You mean engage with the book or engage with agrarianness? A, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of both. So kind of the agrarianness, I mean, both of scripture, of, of a lot of literature that you cite, but also with the book, like this is not the world that I live in. This is not the world that a, a lot of people live in. So they might look at this and say, whittle, like what on earth is a whittle? Um, so like, like how, do, how can they best approach this book as those who don't live on a farm? Or we have listeners obviously who live on farms and whatnot, but yeah, how can those who don't live on farms maybe glean from this work, even if they don't totally understand this work? Yeah. Well, I think lots of people have kind of farm fantasies or farm okay. dreams. Like, you know, the sort of, you take your family out into the country to pick apples and there's a <laughs> corn maze. And yeah, yeah. Look at those mums blooming there so cheerily or whatever, right? Yeah. So we have these kind of farm dreams or whatever that I think make people attracted to thinking about what agrarian life might be like or something like that so i think maybe some people who who have those experiences <laughs> will just want to and be like mm. okay so what's it like and of course i just want to talk about you know the difficulty etc but sure yeah it's conventional right everyone's yeah. like yeah but i think that the central question right how do we work out our faith in the places that we are how does reading literary texts in a certain place change what they mean um i think it does. I think where you are helps you like meet God there, right? Like if you pay attention to where you are mm. um, and seek the Lord in that place, that's how it works. And so this is just one example mm. of how that might work. Mm. Um, so you can sort of, you know, maybe it's attending to plant life or something like that. A kind of oh, sure. walking park or whatever, bird watching, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, so if you want to sort of interact with nature, plenty of ways to do that, even in urban spaces. But I would say even just, okay, here I am in the city. How? What does it mean to read Bartleby the Scrivener in a um, in um, an urban space, in possibly in Wall Street, right? Like where it was written or what it was written for. So can it help us kind of think through? Um, and how do I think about the love of, uh, love of neighbor in that context? It could help me too. Um, so that move is the move that this farm ebook is making, but it's not, exclusive to an agricultural landscape gotcha for sure yeah and i i, I that might have been a stupid question but it was it was an honest like i i can i'm trying to channel some of our listeners like root and sky farm was like eh, i don't live on a farm that's probably not for me but that's that's really helpful situating this literature where we're reading this literature how does it help us live where we're living and not where we hope to live or where we hope the world is but actually where we are at reading this and cultivating this life where we are um so yeah, well, thank you, Dr. Kreiner, so much for writing this book, for the research, for your your work on the farm. Um, so as we end, maybe plug your farm work. Where can people find more of your work, or like what, what where you guys are, what you guys do? Because I know you, I think you sell stuff on your farm, but just yeah, just a general like where can people find you and the stuff that you do. Sure. So rootandskyfarm.com is our website. Um, and you can find a little bit more about us there. Um, we we sell at the Woodstock Farmers Market. It looks so good. I was looking through some of the photos the other day. I was like, oh my, I wish I lived next to Chicago and go to this well, farm. I know, right? Like so today in my office right behind me is like this big pan of tomatoes because I'm trying to, you know, get give them uh give them out. And I bring yeah. deliveries and stuff into the, the college and stuff. But I think to Wheaton's website has a sense of my work more broadly. So you can just Google me yep. um, in the sense that other projects that I'm working on or awesome. other um, other books and stuff that I've written. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for writing this. Thanks for coming on and, and talking about your book. An honor, an honor. Thank you both. Of course. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. Uh, we all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, 
find a link to the publisher that helps them out a ton, a link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to whet your palate. You can We have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there. Yeah. So if you want to find these books and, uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known. It's how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and and read really well. All under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ.